0: in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Jeremy Mannion, the Director of Forestry Carbon Markets at the Arbor Day Foundation. Jeremy, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Kevin, glad to be here. Well, we had an interesting conversation yesterday about carbon markets at lunchtime. Thought I'd bring you over. Yeah. Have a more interesting conversation. Yeah. Tell our audience a little bit about what you do with forestry carbon markets.
1: Yeah, so so forest, um, nature in general, forests, agriculture, wetlands, the oceans are some of the best technology that the planet has to remove and store carbon. But not only is it about carbon sequestration and getting carbon back from the atmosphere back into the ground and the soils where it needs to be, it's also about helping, you know, people that live in the forest actually take care of the forest and, to, and provide all the ecosystem services they provide when it comes to air quality, water quality, biodiversity and habitat for wildlife. And so the, the, the carbon markets as, as a financial mechanism uh, through carbon finance, um, the quantification of, of the carbon stored in the trees um, helps us then kind of turn that into a, a unit, uh, a credit more or less equal to one metric ton of carbon dioxide that we then more or less help companies reach to balance out their carbon emissions, uh, accomplish things like carbon neutral goals, net zero goals. But ultimately we're paying farmers and landholders to protect the trees that we have, improve the management of, of existing working lands and do large amounts of reforestation around the world. So keep trees standing, pay them to plant new trees. Love it, love it. And yeah. so why the big shift now
0: to carbon credits? Are you, are you seeing mm-hmm. a lot of corporations stand up to measure their carbon credits? Are they being forced by stakeholders? Why now?
1: Yeah, so in the carbon markets, there's two main systems. There's the kind of compliance regulatory systems like in Europe and California, where larger emitters are kind of obligated um, to kind of more or less decarbonize their emissions uh, through different types of cap and trade systems. Um, but then what we've been specializing in is the voluntary markets where um, companies uh, like, like you know, Microsoft or Procter and Gamble that don't have a regulatory requirement or as they kind of work towards decarbonizing their kind of core supply chain, uh, how they you know, consume energy and produce goods in a, in a less carbon intensive way. There's only so far they can go right now to reduce those emissions in, in a cost effective way. And so there's typically some type of gap left over at the end of a, a given time period. And so the carbon markets are a way for them to kind of credibly compensate um, for that unabated um, balance of their emissions, where it can be hard to address through cost effective technology. So it buys it helps them balance out their emissions. Um, but then it also provides all these additional benefits from a storytelling perspective, from a how to engage um, different types of communities, whether they're in a city or a rural area. Um, And it really just kind of allows them to kind of buy more time to make this transition to a net zero world. Okay, got it. That Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. And in your presentation
0: yesterday, I thought it was really interesting. I learned a lot about um, maybe how carbon capture isn't happening as much in like the redwoods Mm forests versus new uh, tree planting, sea planting, and growth management, as well as the oceans are mm-hmm. big sequesters of carbon. Educate our audience a little bit about your work in terms of what you've been finding and discovering has been the most effective way to offset companies' carbon emissions.
1: Yeah, so so right now, um, the, the biggest kind of value is we need to stop deforestation um, this this decade. And so um, areas like the Amazon basin, the Congo basin, Southeast Asia, are these kind of historic forest landscapes um, where there's a lot of carbon stored in the, in, in the trees and in the soils, protecting what we have there. The, those, those forests not only help us manage carbon cycles of the planet, but they also control weather patterns, precipitation patterns, food, agricultural products, um, pharma, pharmaceutical products. So a lot of raw materials come from the forest. Um, and so ultimately, we're helping companies um, you know, quantify and, and, and protect those carbon stocks. Um, and then as we get throughout this decade and in the 2030s and 2040s, um, starting large amounts of, of, of reforestation and forest restoration around the world. Uh, there's about, a, from a degraded land standpoint, there's about a landmass twice the size of China um, around the world. It's kind of a mosaic patchwork. Um, about half that area is, respo- is, is suitable for, for reforestation. So that's what we specialize in at the foundation is helping different types of landholders, indigenous communities, small farmers, public lands, private landowners, um, help them kind of accomplish um, restoration of degraded lands, mostly driven from agriculture, uh, corn, soy, um, cattle, palm oil production, help them kind of go back to restoring these historical forest landscapes.
0: You were talking about that yesterday, Mm -hmm. The indigenous population. What can we learn from them and, and how do you like to work with them?
1: Yeah, so indigenous communities really help us see the pathways forward. Um, for, for thousands of years, indigenous communities have been finding ways to live with nature, harnessing the power of nature to their own advantage for, for food security, for water security, for understanding how animals move throughout the landscape. And so I think most indigenous communities already have their life plans. It's been tied to their cultural heritage and we really just gotta kind of have to get out of the way and help them fund what they already know how to do and so we're starting to see that more and more, um, being able to harness the power and the, the cultural kind of knowledge that's been passed down through, through centuries. Um, and so we're seeing our friends like the Forest Service, for example, here in the United States, start working more closely with tribal lands to help them do controlled burns in a healthy way throughout Western forest landscapes, uh, where that fire you know, has been removed. And now we have all these uh, forest health issues because of that.
0: Jeremy, I'm also interested from an investor's perspective on, on carbon markets right now, um, COP26 is coming up. Mm-hmm. A lot of global elites are meeting to make a big goal and mm-hmm. a change in the world. all yep. oh, that's gonna be spurred by competition as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: what are you paying attention to when it comes to market trends in the carbon markets?
1: Yeah, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of new companies coming into the markets right now. Historically, it's been kind of like Fortune 1000 companies um, that have been well-resourced supporting the growth in the markets, which that's continuing. Uh, but now we're seeing a lot of different companies across all different sectors, uh, larger emitters like oil and gas, you know, small startups. Everyone trying to find a way to have some deeper connection to to nature and to find ways to communicate to their stakeholders um, about how they are kind of operating more responsible business models. And so when it comes to to COP twenty um, six, that's where we have you know a lot of national governments trying to create a global more or less kind of carbon trading system. To where from an accounting standpoint we're not having any double counting issues as for example brazil has a lot of forest you know carbon reserves that they might need to trade with other european countries and that might not be able to hit their goals for their Paris agreement within their own borders and so we need high quality carbon accounting but we also need high quality transparency in where global carbon stocks are to where there's not going to be any double counting issues um, and we want to make sure where we're actually getting to a meaningful impact and credibility um, from a kind of expediting this kind of transition towards a a net zero future, not only for environment and climate, but for people and for biodiversity, because it's kind of a a triple crisis right now, climate, but then also a lot of actually people in local communities are, you know, struggling to make incomes, livelihoods, income disparities, and then biodiversity. We're kind of in the middle of the sixth kind kind of mass extinction right now because of destruction of habitat mostly. And so all these things can be kind of accomplished with the proper project design, but it's not just about nature, it's also about decarbonizing the energy sector, how we produce energy, how we produce or how we how we transport around the world, flights, you know, things like that. Transportation is the biggest source of emissions here in the US now. So it's hitting both these fronts, energy, transportation and nature all together to get us where we need to go in the future.
0: I mean, we're seeing the cost of energy go up and up and up and up, mm-hmm. and the cost of oil and gas going up and up and then- do you think that one day there will be a regulatory tax on carbon? And what are your thoughts on just uh, carbon tax in general that's not obviously voluntary?
1: Yeah, so um, the voluntary markets, I mean, more or less serve as companies almost imposing a tax on themselves right now as, the, as they pay for carbon. Um, and so, you know, whether or not, we, we, there are already kind of, you know, small systems around the world that, that implement taxes or cap and trade. And I think it'll be interesting to see how those kind of scale become nationalized, but there's also, you know, some challenges in in doing that. Um, And so I think some of the markets are already working pretty well, like in Europe and in California, um, on the kind of cap and trade side of the equation. Carbon tax is another way to do it. But, you know, the word tax is also challenging for people to kind of like buy, you know, buy into and get on board with. And so it's really about how, how do we kind of, I think maybe reframe that a little bit to what are you gonna be getting in return for that investment? Um, and it, that, again, that's when it comes to kind of like restoring habitat, helping communities and local farmers create income and, and, and stabilize their livelihoods um, because you know, rural opportunities um, economically are, are pretty challenging. That's why you know, historically most people are now moving into cities for, for economic opportunities. Um, and sometimes that drives other types of social issues and conflict around migration, um, density in cities, and so really trying to help people really where they are because most people don't want to leave their communities if they don't have to.
0: Interesting, yeah. that's really interesting. Now, yeah. I want you to explain this term, cap and trade. Yeah. i have been mentioning it a lot. Yeah, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, What is cap and trade?
1: Yeah, so cap and trade is, you know, for example, let's use a oil and gas company example. So like um, California will basically allow them to emit so much carbon. And then if if they basically are, are below their cap, they can then trade their allowances with other emitters that might be going over. And so, and then that kind of, that cap kind of over time declines. And so it kind of forces them to continue to get more and more efficient. And the more efficient they are, they can trade their allowances to other companies Um, And be able to kind of help others in the space as well make that transition. And if they're having trouble kind of trading with allowances, then some systems do allow additional offsets to allow them to hit their overall target for that particular year. What are the units in this allowance? What is a carbon credit? Yeah, all carbon credits equal one metric ton of carbon dioxide. And so right now we have about a trillion metric tons of excess carbon in the atmosphere and we're trying to pull that back down, back into the soils, back into the trees where, they, where they've been uh, historically.
0: How many metric tons, how many credits are we gonna need per year, mm-hmm. projectively estimated, yeah. to you know, reverse this climate change? I mean, we've already heard from a few people who've already passed the tipping point of no return on some areas around the world. Like, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that, and how, much, how many credits would we need to reverse this?
1: Yeah, so right now, in, in 2020, the voluntary markets are around 100 million metric tons. Um, so a significant amount, but we need about 15x growth, at, 15 times growth in that, according to our friends at McKinsey and the task force for scaling voluntary markets uh, by 2030, and then up to 100x growth by, by 2050. And so that brings us um, some quick math up to a little over a billion tons by 2030 for, for uh, carbon dioxide removals in particular. Um, and then and then you know up to, I think, what is it? Um, I'll have to do some math at the top of my head there, but the 100X growth is, is the kind of the big one, but I think that's where um, there's a lot of opportunity in this I think that now we're seeing, and that's why we're seeing a lot of new investment coming into the space from the, the kind of capital markets and the banking sector, Insurance companies are figuring out how to help us mitigate risk over time. Um, and then we have different technology companies coming in to help us track more effectively from a remote sensing standpoint, artificial intelligence, to see uh, and be able to track carbon stocks at a higher level of detail through tools like LiDAR. Um, so it's kind of this like, kind of combination of all these different sectors coming together to really figure out how to drive more efficiency and more scale to where we can go from, you know, 10X to 100X here here pretty quickly. So
0: planting trees is one way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. squishing the carbon um, in the soils and also in the leaves, mm-hmm. photosynthesis, right? And then what about, I mean, I, I, obviously you have mangrove trees. Mm-hmm. You also have this big blue thing that's on our planet called mm-hmm. the ocean. Well, what's happening over there? How, how yeah. can we squish more carbon by using
1: uh, the ocean? Yeah, so the oceans, I think, are like the next frontier that we're still learning about. Our friends at Sustainable Surf, we're talking a lot about that yesterday. And between the oceans and the forests, they're removing about forty percent of the carbon we emit on the planet, which is about forty billion tons a year. And so if it wasn't for the forests and the oceans, we'd already be well over one and a half degrees warming uh, from, from the Paris climate standpoint. And so we would be you know really in a bad place if it wasn't for nature and, and, and oceans and, and and forests already. And so I think when it comes to the oceans, though, that's where I think we're understanding how to quantify what they're doing in the carbon cycle, kelp, mangroves, coral reefs, and that's where there's still a lot of kind of science being trying to figure out how to quantify those carbon cycles and can you quantify that in a way where it is permanent enough to turn it into a carbon credit. I think investing in the restoration and the health of oceans makes sense whether or not carbon credits are generated. But then, can you leverage carbon finance to help accelerate that cycle? Is really, I think, the big question right now that we're trying to navigate through. Um, and so, there's a lot of great scientists working on that. That's not my area of expertise, but but we have that intersection of of kind of mangroves, kind of coastal, you know, ocean forests, um, and what happens upstream and all the watersheds we work with. Ultimately, you know, kind of goes to the river systems down. Into the oceans, and so getting that kind of like water health, that kind of cycle, balanced appropriately. Thinking about what's happening upstream, downstream, how to get these systems working together most effectively, and so that's where um, I think there's there's a lot of learning to still be done on on understanding that that kind of cycle. But that's where I think there's a lot of great scientists working on that that we that we talk to and trust on a on a a basis at NOAA, um, for example, or um, our friends at like Conservation International are all kind of really leading the way on that science front. So a business leader just
0: heard this podcast mm-hmm. and they think, oh, this, is, this is exciting. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about this. How did they get involved?
1: Yeah. So the, I think the, the easiest thing to do to get involved is one just kind of understand like where you are in your, your kind of uh, current emissions profile. So measuring your direct and indirect emissions, understanding what your pathways to reduce carbon look like for your specific business needs. Having the ability to then kind of support nature and, and, and kind of balance out your missions uh, along that pathway, celebrate and tell that story. Because this is a continuous improvement process that's going to take us time. It's going to take us decades. And so we have to find ways to empower people with purpose and ownership and kind of find new ways forward and kind of creating new business models that kind of create more balance um, with, with nature versus kind of extracting from it.
0: It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader?
1: Yeah, my definition of a real leader is kind of motivated by Brene Brown. And so, um, you know, first being, you know, self-aware, understanding yourself, um, understanding that it's okay to be vulnerable with people. It helps them open up to you in return. Um, And once you become self-aware, then you're able to influence others better. And so, you know, I think I think we need, we need that more in society. We need more vulnerability. We need people having harder conversations um, and we need people to have opportunities to have careers and impact with purpose, um, both at a local level in particular, and then as we're kind of making these broader transitions in our economy. And so to me, um, you know, it, it's a lot about curiosity, open-mindedness, um, you know, kind of a continuous learning approach um, and then also just being grateful for for the opportunities that, that I've been able to have personally um, to be able to kind of help shape this future. And um, we're we're excited about where we're going. And I think I think it's a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of secure the future for humanity.
0: Well said, Jeremy. For yeah.
1: Jeremy Mannion. I'm Kevin
0: Edwards. I'm asking you to go out there, be vulnerable, be grateful, and always, <laughs> folks, keep it real. Thanks,
1: Jeremy. Thanks, Kevin.